Welcome, everybody, to the Seattle Sports Union Podcast. My name is Abraham Deweese. I'm back once again with Brian, the Soul Man Solak. Today, we go back in history and talk to the seven foot one man in the middle of the most exciting era of Seattle Supersonics basketball. Welcome, Jim McElvain. Hey, thanks for having me on. I don't know. We, we didn't actually win the championship when I was there, so I'm not sure if it was the most exciting. I, I think championships equal excitement to me. I, they, they do, but uh, you're our age. You're, uh, you just got your uh, uh, AARP card, right? So, not um, yet. I'm no. five years <laughs> but um, I, I was a little too young to understand the 1979 Sonics. Um, that was... I don't know about you, Solak. I don't have a memory of it, to be honest. I don't either. Very, yeah. very little memory of it at all. <laughs> but remember- I have a very light memory of the 1977 Marquette Warrior Championship team. <laughs> I, I know what that's like. Well, you're, you're saying that because we know that uh, you're married to a woman uh, who won the 1994 national, national title in basketball. Uh, does she ever lord that over you? Does she ever hold that uh, championship trophy on you? She, she's pretty good about it. We, we have our, they call them frog rooms in Florida because nobody has basements. It's a family room over the garage. And so we have her Jersey framed up there and my Jersey framed up there. And then a bunch of her championship stuff. And, um, Marquette beat Carolina in 77 and I'm not allowed (laughs) to get into that too often, Uh, Uh, but she's, She's the true champion in the family. I had to marry into a, a national championship. <laughs> right on. Um, I, I got to skip skip ahead to this question. I, I talk, you know, we all know who Kevin Calabro is. He's a friend of the show, and I know he's a friend of yours. Oh, he's great. He's uh, a butler. What was that? He's a butler guy. We used yes. to go back forth on butler and marquette in the big east oh right on right on <laughs> um couple things he t- i was talking to him on twitter last night he did tell me to tell you to say hello to jimmy mack and it but he also asked me to ask you about the surf and boat wake what does that mean um i i had a 97 sport nautique ski boat when i lived in seattle and loved it and but i, I couldn't do much toe sports when i was playing basketball and then i sold the boat when when I got done and now I'm I'm busy working but next month when I'm not as busy working I'm going to drive up to North Carolina I bought another ski boat and uh, that should be a a good time but um, I had that boat on Lake Washington had great times out there with it and and people don't realize Wisconsin Florida and Washington State are probably like the three biggest states for water skiing in the country and there's a incredible ski shop out in the Seattle area, Wiley's, um, that does custom bindings. In fact, um, I went there to get custom bindings on this ski. It's an O'Brien BFS, which you can imagine what BFS stands for. It's big ski. And, and they never <laughs> told me. But I went there to get custom bindings and they looked at me like, you play in the NBA? I said, yeah. I said, do you know Mike Peplowski? I'm like, well, yeah, I, he and I played together in Washington. They're like, he owes us money. He, <laughs> we had to do the rush thing on getting him custom bindings on a ski, and he never paid. I'm like, I don't know him that well. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it sounds like maybe that's something that might have happened with Mike. Maybe there was a miscommunication or something. But I found wetsuits there that fit me, and they did custom bindings for a big feet, and they're just fantastic. And, and I love those guys. And 
And that was, that was in an era where they still had a lot of competition with Overton's and Bart's and Ski Limited were these big catalog outfits. And they've kind of either consolidated or closed down entirely. And, and Wiley's has just always been there. And they've got this massive, awesome water ski collection like bolted to the roof of their, the inside of their building. And oh, these wow. really rare wow. skis and stuff. And, and I kind of started my own ski collection uh, in Wisconsin. I have a bunch of skis. So um, it, there's a big ski community in Washington state. Wisconsin is kind of, it, you wouldn't think it for a state that has frozen lakes for half the year, <laughs> but it's, it's the epicenter in the world for show skiing. Oh, wow. All the big shows, SeaWorld and Cypress Gardens, when they're around, it's Legoland now. Um, all these professional ski shows all pull all their skiers out of the Wisconsin ski shows, which are literally the best ski shows in the world, even though they're amateur shows, because they can have as many people as they want. The pro professional shows can only hire like 12, 15 people to be in their shows. And so uh, like the Rock Aqua Jays, they just set a world record. I can't remember how many people it was that they had in a pyramid behind one boat, but I think it was like 92 people. Oh. Uh, maybe two five high pyramids and the boat is a is a they call it a legacy it's based on a hydrodyne hull and only water ski people are going to be like oh this is such cool information everybody else is like what's he talking about but they <laughs> they split the hull on the hydrodyne and it's 23 feet now it's wider and it's longer and they've got 1500 pounds of ballast in the bow and they had three 300 horsepower mercury engines 900 horsepower on the back of this 23 foot boat to pull all these skiers and they they stagger how they pull them off the docks so they can like get a group of 20 started and then get another group of 20 and, and do it all the way through they used to connect another boat to the front and pull the two boats at the same time to get everybody off the dock and then they figured out how to stagger it and, and do it that way but just amazing stuff that they do um in the ski shows in wisconsin and it's kind of a tourist town thing where you've got a bunch of these small towns that are on lakes and they have a, a bunch of usually Illinois tourists that come up in the summertime and they put on ski shows on Saturday nights. And hmm. So that's big there. And then they used to call it three event skiing with jumping tricks and slalom. And it got pretty specialized and, and the wake sports kind of destroyed that they're not really destroyed it, but kind of like snowboarding saved ski hills, I guess. Okay. Um, okay. The, the wake surfing and the wakeboarding kind of saved the ski boat companies because now everybody wants to do that because it's a lot easier to do it. You can do it forever. It doesn't take nearly as much energy. And uh, and so a lot of people do that now. I, I'm, I do a little bit of that, but I always have liked water skiing because I love the workout and the speed and the technique involved in it. And it's just more fun for me in these wake boats now. I don't know how many days I have left on the water, but I, I have a hard time rationalizing $200,000 for a 23 foot, you know, wake boat. Right. When, when these tournament ski boats are really like an unbelievably good deal on a boat. It, it may be not the best boat for a lake, like Lake Washington. Like it's, it's kind of like a washing machine because everybody's got breakwater and it gets real choppy on busy days and stuff. But if you live on a, a smaller lake or a river, where it's a little calmer, you can go out and, and find a really nice used tournament ski boat, inboard ski boat with a like a 350 or a 351 motor in it, direct drive, 
um, for like five, six, seven thousand dollars. It doesn't need anything. You can drop in the water and go. How? And how hip? Really, oh, sorry. Good. They're, they're really inexpensive. They're really well built boats, and they're really inexpensive because nobody wants them because they all want an open bow boat, and they're they're very purpose built. So you can probably carry five or six people on them but you really can't tow people behind the boat because the pylon is in the middle so anybody that's sitting in the seat across the back would get decapitated by the <laughs> rope if somebody's behind the boat so it really only holds two two or three people when you've got somebody behind the boat but it's 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 a smoking deal if somebody ever wanted to get an old ski nautique or or an old uh, mastercraft they're out there and there's great deals to be had on them how, how hip were uh, the bullets and the Sonics on you out there uh, cavorting on Lake Washington? And We didn't talk about that too much. Fortunately, <laughs> uh, fortunately, there's not a strong correlation between water sports and the NBA. Okay. So it wasn't a big issue. I think Luke Longley dislocated his shoulder at one point, body surfing. Oh. Wow, and okay. I, I, th I think Shaq wiped out on a moped at the big man's camp in Hawaii one year and just like tore all the skin off the side of his leg or something. I believe, so, I believe they weren't even really cool with you guys doing uh basketball, like blacktop basketball, right? Because you might get injured no, in the off season. No. So the, like the standard player contract when they used to just say motorcycles. And then when Shaq wiped out in the moped, then they added mopeds the next year. And, <laughs> And Michael Jordan had the love of the game clause in his contract where he was allowed to play basketball anytime he wanted, anywhere he wanted with anybody who he wanted to play with. And everybody else had more strict rules. I don't know if it was spelled out specifically, but generally the thought was you don't play basketball anywhere with anybody who's not at least division one talent or better, because you just don't know what somebody's going to do. You might go up for a layup and they take your legs out next thing you know you're never playing basketball again or right. certainly not at the level that you were professionally so you were you're kind of cautious of it but when you when you're in the league um or even before you get there at, at the division one level like the bucks would always come in and work out with us at marquette and i just had lunch today because i'm in utah with fred roberts who played for the bucks when i was there and and frank Burkowski, another former oh, sonic yeah. um he was with the bucks and so I, I got to know all those guys when I was in college because they'd come in and work out with Marquette before the season started and they'd run up and down the court with us to get in shape. And uh, it, it was kind of like, it, it, was, it was a really nice introduction to the league and, and that way you don't get drafted and, and show up in the NBA and not know anybody. It's, it's, it's one of the great things about Marquette being in an NBA city is, is the players do interact with the pros and get to pick their brains a little bit and, and and we had a lot of a lot of the pros that would come in and, and work out with us, and 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 I, it was just fantastic for us. I'm I'm thankful for that experience that that you don't get in every every college town for sure. Very cool. And I'm gonna cheat and ask another question, even though we we do want to talk about your college experience. But you mentioned Michael Jordan, and you blocked one of his shots. I mean, how cool was that? Was that a thrill for you, or <laughs> you know? that's the internet's crazy <laughs> i forgot honestly i forgot that i did that okay and i some guy i think he's in france or somewhere found that clip and put it on youtube 
And <laughs> God bless Google because that's like one of the first things that shows up when you search for me on on Google. <laughs> and, and that's great. and I told I left a message on there. I told that guy I don't know where you live, but if you ever come near me, find me on Twitter or something, I will buy you a steak dinner. And and that's a standing offer for anybody who puts a video of me doing something good or positive in <laughs> search results, I will buy you a steak dinner. Um, if you ever, like, I'm in Utah, and if you lived in Utah, and, and I'm in Twila, I guess, tonight, I would buy you a steak dinner somewhere. Or I'm going to Vegas for the SEMA show, I'd buy you a steak dinner because uh, that's, like it or not, that's how our, our legacy is defined by what people can find on the internet about you and 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 so uh, it, it's it's interesting to see how technology has changed the legacy of, of so many people. That's one of the reasons I like going on podcasts. I'm like you guys. I'm 50 years old, but I have a five-year-old son. Okay. And I don't, I don't know what mental capacity or state I'm going to be in when he has kids. And I never really got to know my grandparents because my dad was born in 1930. And, you know, we're all Catholic and every child is a gift from God. Mm -hmm. and, and so my dad was 42 when he had me and my mom was I think 38 and I never knew either of my grandparents and I would give anything to listen to a recording of a conversation that my grandfather had with anybody on any subject about living in Chicago in the 1920s and, and oh, the yeah. great depression I don't care playing in playing in jazz clubs he used to play a trombone um or how he couldn't get drafted into world war one because he was too tall any anything i don't care um so this podcast is and and actually i have my own podcast the marked men podcast that i do with uh, another marquette alum um and we haven't done one in a while but um we've got a bunch out there and it's just i don't know how long these will last or where they'll end up but i'm hoping you know my grandkids will someday if i don't get a chance to meet them or get to know them very well it'll be an opportunity for them to learn a little bit more about their grandpa well for your kids and for your grandkids let's talk about marquette because you're still listed as the all-time leader in blocks uh, and in 1994 you actually led marquette to an ncaa tournament berth a conference championship um you actually had a really good four years but was that tourney run what really got the NBA looking at you? Or were they charting you all the way from the beginning? I, I think seven foot one helped. Um, <laughs> and Marquette, my junior and senior year, led the country in uh, defensive field goal percentage. And I'm not sure if we set the NCAA record for that. But we were if we didn't, we were really close to it. So we were a, a really an exceptional defensive team. And it wasn't just the block shots. Uh, we kept a charge chart and I always got in trouble with the guards because I somehow managed to draw more charges than they did. <laughs> and, and they were always getting yelled at by the coaches. Cause you know, you gotta be tough to draw a charge. Cause you gotta be able to let a guy knock you over. And, and I did it because people wanted to dunk on me or, you know, try to dunk, you know, try to dunk on the seven footer. And, and they knew I was a shot blocker. So they thought I was going to try to block the shot, but I ended up, take a lot of charges and I've as, as much as I was known as a shot blocker um I've always felt the, the best defensive play you could possibly make um of anything where and, and people don't track it they don't track it statistically because it doesn't happen often enough that you know uh except unless you play for Duke maybe you average three charges drawn per game uh people don't track that but you get a guaranteed possession 
and the other team has a foul and it's a momentum killer for them and a momentum changer for you. Everybody gets excited. Your teammates help pick you up and, and then you get to go down and try to figure out how to score on them. So um, I always liked the charges. I didn't shy away from them. And thank goodness we had Frank Furtado as a trainer in Seattle because <laughs> we didn't have Under Armour when I was in the NBA. But Frank Furtado was a visionary, and we lost him a couple of years ago. And he he was, when I was there, he was probably the most tenured um, trainer in the NBA. And he was he was a trainer before they required you to be a certified athletic trainer. And John Lally, who left Washington the year before I got there, was like the last uncertified athletic trainer still working in the NBA. Um, and I think Frank got his certification, but he didn't need to. He was, he was grandfathered in, but he was on the cutting edge of everything. Like, what, he saw, what would he do? That? What did he do that was cutting edge? I, I've, I've never heard much. I mean, I know who Frank Furtado is, um, but I, uh, this is all new information to me. What, what did you, um, can you think of something that he might've done that other teams weren't doing? He kept Gary Payton healthy. <laughs> and <kept him> <laughs> <laughs> 38 minutes a night or whatever. Um, I mean, that was an amazing feat in itself, but he noticed that I took a lot of charges and um, he noticed that my low back turned like a brownish purplish color after, you know, the first 10 or 20 games of the season, it just got bruised so much from hitting the floor. And, and he had pockets sewn in the back of my jerseys and put padding in there. So I had oh, padding wow. in my back area. So it made it a lot easier to take charges. Um, and, and I ended up taking that with me to New Jersey and had padding sewn, sewn in my jerseys there. So I could, little pockets that you could put foam padding in to make it easier to take the charges. And, and then, you know, a couple years after that, Under Armour came along and now everybody's wearing all kinds of padding underneath their jerseys. Wow. Uh, okay. That's interesting. We were men in my day, and we did. <laughs> um, that thing. Um, he had this equipment out there, um, German made, I think, was the name on it. Um, and he took a silhouette, like he had you stand in a profile on on, on a white background with these squares, and then they put a, a light on your spine. And then they traced out the silhouette of your spine on this board. And the theory is the curvature in your spine, because it, it kind of curves in, in one direction from your head through the neck area into your torso. And then from, from like your chest area. And then from your chest, as you go down to the low back, it curves again, you know. So you've got some S curves in there. And they should all be within a certain percentage of each other. And, and my lower back was a little bit flatter and straighter than it should have been. Mm. Um, so he was able to pick, pick up on that, not just with me, but with everybody on the team. And then he had this equipment where you strapped into this seat and you had like these Velcro seat belts that held you in and your feet went in and they had like air pressure on them. And, and then they had these um, padded posts that went into your back and, and they dialed it in based on what they saw in that graph and and you did these exercises to help actually change the curvature of your spine oh wow to aligned better and they had i mean it was it was state of the art i went from uh the washington bullets who practiced and, and there's 
buried in, in the internet archives somewhere. It's a shame that it probably is, but I'm sure the, the wizards had some influence in that. There was an expose that was done um, after the Michael Jordan fallout in, in DC, where they went back and took a hard look at the franchise and talked about all the stuff that was going on. Um, when I was playing for the Bullets, we practiced in an old gym at Bowie State University that Bowie State wouldn't even practice in anymore because <laughs> we're still not exaggerating. That's yeah. the honest truth. And the locker room there was like old school, high school with like, it, it, there wasn't, I call it a locker room. There was really no lockers in the room. It was just like the fencing in between the stalls and that, and they had some hooks where you could hang your clothes. And, and so I, and, and the showers, they had like one and a half that worked and, and one that came out like steaming the toilets, you know, flushed, steaming hot, and the showers were ice cold. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I go from that to the Sonics and as a free agent, I mean, that stuff's important because the teams, you know, they got salary caps and they can only pay you so much. And then you start looking at the other stuff and Mark Cuban figured that out really quickly and got a really nice plane for the Mavericks and, and really pushed the envelope to the point where um, the NBA pushed back on like every, every guy on, on the Mavericks had DVD players, portable DVD players when DVDs were first coming out, like, when they were first coming out, they're handing these DVDs to and and VHS tapes after the games to team visiting teams so they have copies. And the coaches are like giving me these DVDs, like, I don't know what to do with a CD. Am I gonna listen to the game? <laughs> and all the guys in in uh, Dallas had these portable DVD players and and the league said that was uh, impermissible benefit, like beyond the salary cap, and they had to give them back or something. They're always and and like they had the best spread of food when you were on the road, because Cuban wanted everybody to know, look how great I teach I treat you as a visitor. Imagine how great I'm going to treat you if you're on my team. Yeah, good point. And and so he he played the free agent game very very smartly. Paul Allen did down in Portland as well. I think Air Force One was the second plane to get internet access in the world. And Paul Allen's was the first, and that was the <laughs> one that won. And, and Seattle had their own plane and their own pilots. And, and, and that was great. So um, Frank had all this equipment. They had a hyperbaric chamber and mm. which accelerated the healing process. In the nineties. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. It was, it was a capsule and he'd roll a, v8, a VCR and a TV up and I'd sit in there and watch like Bridge on the River Kwai with a, with a mask on and, you know, oxygenate my blood and, and, you know, recover from a sprained ankle or something. Everybody's going to the hyperbaric chamber. And it was like an ordeal. It was like, you know, you get in there and they seal you in this, this capsule and pressurize you and, and go through that whole procedure. And, and Frank, um, took such good care of his guys and, and not that I had poor trainers anywhere else, but not to the degree that Frank Furtado worked on guys. Like he looked at your feet and your toenails and, and you'd be surprised how, you know, like you watch Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan is like, take care of your feet. You know, so I gotta have dry sock. That's really important. It's important in basketball too. And, and guys had like Howard Hughes toenails and, and calluses that they could like break off because they never trimmed really disgusting stuff. Right. 
And so Frank's in, in there and he's taping guys and he's like, yeah, I'm going to take care of this. And so you go in there and he, you know, put on a, um, he put on a mask for COVID and he got out a Dremel moto tool and, you know, shaving down your calluses and stuff. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. Frank, nobody's ever done that before. Do they have like special, like uh grit sandpaper attachments for the Dremel Moto tool for skinnies like no nah, I just use the ones for wood they seem to <laughs> and they did and my feet were in never in better shape than they were when Frank Furtado took care of them he did a great job and he had um he had another thing um these chip bags and they had foam chips sewn in them and channels sewn in them and the chips had different densities and then he had these boots that he could put on, like they would run up the length of your leg or they would run up your arm and, and they would pump pressure, like 60 pounds of pressure into your foot and ankle, 40 pounds into your calf, and then 20 pounds into your knee sequentially. And, and between that pressure and the chip bags and, and the pumping action would pump all the swelling up to your heart. And you'd lay there and do that. Nobody else was doing that kind of stuff. I mean, Frank was absolutely amazing. And Bobby Medina and Dwight Dobb, the strength coaches, had all that great equipment. The strength, they had, um, if, if you were a good franchise, and, and not every franchise was, Milwaukee Bucks had Woodway treadmills because Woodway is based in Waukesha. And instead of like a, a solid like thing you run on, they had slats. And the slats flexed as you ran on them. So it was a cushioned treadmill. Better for your and knees? Yeah, much better for your knees. Um, the Detroit Pistons had one. Because you, when you practice on the road, sometimes you practice at the other team's facilities. You get to check out their stuff. And the, the Pistons had one that was almost like running on a trampoline. It was kind of funky. Hmm. But Seattle had Woodway treadmills. I ended up buying a Woodway treadmill from the house because it was such a nice machine. It was like the only treadmill that would they'd offer to buy it back at a guaranteed price because they were so good and so durable. And especially when you're like a 250 pound, 260 pound forward or center in the NBA, you run on these treadmills like they have at the hotels and the weight of your body coming down on that treadmill mat just like stops it in place. And it's not <laughs> a very good experience and the woodways could handle the heavyweight guys. And then, and then they had a harness system. Um, when you were recovering from a leg injury of any kind or knee or ankle or whatever, you could run and they counteract your weight. So you're running instead of your full 260 pounds, you're running at maybe 120 pounds. And so Frank, Frank had all the tools and gadgets and tricks and, and all the, the gymnic balls. And, and we go down, you know, and play the Lakers or the Clippers and go over to gold's gym and work out there in Venice beach and, and, uh, and, our our strength coach you know bobby or, or dwight would bring this stuff in and and then you know like five years after all these trainers in, in southern california saw the nba guys um using all this equipment then they start incorporating that into their workouts with celebrities it gets trickled down but it frank was so good in so many different ways and i'm probably leaving out a lot of stuff but when you look at the condition of Nate McMillan's body and Gary Payton's body and the amount of minutes that those guys played, their careers were extended and, and enhanced because of the efforts of Frank Furtado. He was such a good trainer and, and he had 
Don, a juice guy who came in and made fresh squeezed juice for us after every practice and every game <clears throat> because <clears throat> Frank knew that a lot of the guys were young and they were going to have McDonald's for breakfast and Burger King <laughs> for lunch and Pizza Hut for dinner. Right. <laughs> and, and this might be the only healthy thing they put in their body all day long. And the juice tasted phenomenal. So guys would get a couple glasses of it and it had all the vitamins and stuff pumped in there and it was great. And it was fantastic. And they put supplements in everybody's locker, including the gummy bear supplements to get guys to eat it. Cause sometimes you know, they're not going to take horse tablets, but I took all that stuff um, because it was, it was good for you. And, and, it, and it's not like they're giving you steroids. They're just giving you vitamins and minerals that, that you're probably depleting when you're playing. And, and so nobody else looked after us the way Frank did. He was, he was such a, such a good trainer. And, and people don't know this about George. I like telling this story. Frank was going to retire. Um, I think either after my first year there, or my second year there. And so George Carl wanted to do something really nice for Frank because George recognized what an amazing guy he was. And he asked, he went back and asked all Frank's former players to chip in on a sailboat because Frank loved sailing. And I don't know how much they all chipped in. I, I threw a couple grand in and, and I think a bunch of other guys did, but I think George got stuck with most of the bill, but he was okay <laughs> with that. And they ended up buying him. It might've been a 32 foot hunter. And, and he had Mark St. Ives, who was one of the great equipment managers of all time, like pumping Frank for information, like, so if you could get a sailboat, Frank, what kind would you get? How long would it be? Just, just, casu would... just casually he's throwing that out there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, getting all the information. <laughs> and they went out and George bought that boat for him and That's gave it awesome. to him. That is yeah. awesome. George uh, is a generous guy. He he gave all his assistant coaches uh, pool tables one year and all the guys. Wow. I still have my Seattle Sonics pool cue. George gave everybody on the team pool cues one year. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Um. Before I ask my next question, I got to jump on that Frank Furtado bandwagon real quick. We, my brother and I went to the NBA draft in 89 when the Sonics got camp and I think it was Dana Barrows, but long story short, we sat with Frank and a buddy of his and Frank, Frank was the nicest guy we, we've ever met at that time. He, he, we, we talked to him, he answered any question. You could tell his friend was getting annoyed that we're, we, Frank was paying more attention to us than him, <laughs> but I, I want to give Frank props. I mean, it was one of the, one of those experiences I'll never forget. So. Hey, Brian, how come you never invited me to that? I um, <laughs> Not back in high school, man. <laughs> we'll talk about that another time. That's for another show. I realize what the job of an NBA trainer entailed back then. Not only did these guys, were they were taping ankles and, and taking care of bodies. They were booking all the travel. We're, wow, really? Wow. They, like coordinated the buses and the hotels and the chartered flights. And it was like a whole lot. Now, you know, teams probably have special people that do nothing but the travel, but the trainers did all that back in the day. And, and they were the ones that booked all the hotels. And then when you go up to the trainer's room, they're in like the presidential suite because they need extra rooms to set up their tables for treatment and stuff. And, and they've got like, you know, bottles of champagne and huge baskets of fruit because the <laughs> hotel's trying to butter up because they know who's booking the rooms and and they want those guys to come back the next year. That is so <laughs> cool. I didn't know any of this about uh, Frank Furtado. That's uh, the unsung heroes that help make teams go. I guess. What what a great not not just Frank though, but the, the Ackerley family. I mean that 
when when I talked to different teams and 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 learned about Seattle, the Ackerley family did such a fantastic job of running that franchise and bringing in the best people at every position. Uh, Matt Wade and and uh, all those folks, they're they're so good at what they did, and, and Wally and and so passionate about the team and committed to excellence at every turn. Um, I, it was hard to not want to go to Seattle, even, even, you know, and there were teams that offered more money. It's like, well, Seattle is just in the finals and they've got such a, I mean, they've got a fantastic practice facility with two full-size NBA courts in it. And, you know, the bullets are playing literally tiles falling from the ceiling at Bowie state university. And <laughs> when I went in and played when, and practiced for summer league, they brought in portable air conditioners because there was no HVAC in that building. And, and you, you tried to, you know, stop and stand over by the, the air conditioner. It was blowing the one cold stream of air out. Cause the rest of the gym was like 95 and, and there was like no padding on the, it had a, it had a stage at one end of the court, just like, you know, a lot of, a lot of people had at their small grade school and junior high and high school gyms. And, and there wasn't, adequate padding everywhere and and to go from that to the sonics practice facility and like tim gergerich had a place i'm sure like an apartment or a condo or something he was never there anytime day or night you walked into that practice facility gerg was in his corner office right off the basketball court ready to go shag rebounds for you anytime you wanted to and if he wasn't there he'd be there in five minutes if you wanted to go work out and in the summertime, I'd go out to Vegas and work out with him out there. And and he'd bring a bunch of guys. And he just, Gerg was like the best assistant ever in the NBA. And just phenomenal. And George had such a great staff with Bob Weiss and Terry Stotts and, and Dwayne Casey. And those guys all went on to be head coaches or were head coaches in the NBA. I mean, such a fantastic the scouting reports were so good and so detailed. They had so much information and, and you know, what we had for scouting reports in, in Washington, nothing. You know, we had in <laughs> Seattle, eh, we didn't have much. And, and I, I'm like, you know, the Sonics were using this service that tracked everybody's shots. And so like, you know, Dikembe Mutombo goes over his left shoulder and on the right block, you know, 75% of the time. And, and they had that all detailed out in scouting reports. I'm like, we, how much does this cost? And and then that's like, it's like 10 grand a year. I'm like, here's a check for 10 grand. Let's get this. It could, you know, help us win more games. We're like, no, no, we'll find some budget for it. But it's <laughs> just that. Analytics and, and before it was cool, huh? And, and, and guess who saved all his scouting reports? You did. You did? Oh, did I ever? Yeah. <laughs> now you saved, scouting, you saved the scouting reports on yourself or on other players? No, on, on the other teams we played. <laughs> Because I, I like when I got traded in New Jersey, I had all my scout reports. So I'm like, well, it hadn't changed that much. I'll bring it in. And so I, I kept looking over the scout reports from the past year when I was in New Jersey. And they're like, where'd you get this? I'm like, this is what we had in Seattle. <laughs> and Terry Stotts put them together and he did such a good job with those things. The first thing I do is tear my name off the corner of it because he'd put your name on the corner of it. Because if you, if you left it on the bus or got left behind somewhere, it's a huge fine. Oh. Um, so if you tear your name off the corner, then they don't know whose it is. So, <laughs> and, and at some point, I don't know what I'll do with them, but I, I'm one of those weirdos that saved 
everything like you know playoff towels and and weird weird stuff that you wouldn't like i put a picture up on my facebook page of when i was at the big man's camp which zuzu sponsored they took a, a photo of all the guys at the big man's camp and i just everybody else you know most of them didn't make it off the island they left in the hotel room or chucked it in the garbage can and i took it home with me and found it like a couple last summer and scanned it and then like todd fuller's like holy cow i never i don't know what happened to my picture and and you know derek montross is in there and george zedek and all these guys and it's like you know that was before everybody had cell phones with cameras so they could capture photos and videos all the time there was hardly you know by comparison there's like no photos or videos from that era so everything you get is golden and and, <clears throat> and i've got a, a basketball basement full of that stuff <clears throat> that's awesome uh you you pretty much answered my next question while you went to seattle so i'm gonna alter my question okay you have a, you have a favorite gary payton story you'd care to share i don't know you just it you realize how special guys like gary and sean and, and detliff and, and nate and hersey are when you play against them and then to get the opportunity to play with those guys and and you don't know how many of them are going to make it to the hall of fame but you know some of them are going to be there certainly gary and sean i mean you, you jump at those opportunities and and george is in the hall of fame now and it's just what a what a tremendous experience and you know, I, I, I wish we could have won a championship, but, and, you know, at the, with what they were paying in the league at that point, it's just monopoly money. Just, I wanted to win a championship. I, I didn't care so much about the money and Seattle seemed like the best chance to win a championship. And, and Steve Scheffler and I had the same agent and he loved that team. He, he'd show me, you know, like when we come in and play Seattle, he'd show me the scouting reports, not for us, but for other teams that they played i'm like they give you these for every game he's like yeah they're great I'm like, i used to get these in college i i didn't know they still did that in the nba and and, and he you know i'd work out with steve scheffler in the off season and he'd talk up seattle a lot loved living out there and and you know the the whole community obviously embraced him and and deservedly so he's he's one of the best human beings you're ever going to encounter um, so it, it was, it was an easy sell for me to go to Seattle. I, I really wanted to be there. All right, Jim. So I'm going to ask the tough one. Uh, I think that you were unfairly caught up in that whole situation. Um, fans and media kept griping about your contract and that how it was unfair to Sean Kemp. And the fact of the matter is there was a union collective bargaining thing that he couldn't have got his money until after the year. Um, how did you manage those waters? How did you not go crazy, <laughs> you know, with, with all that, all that talk and all that chatter. Um, and you actually, you actually had a great year that year. And, uh, but I can't, but I, you know, I can't imagine like it, it must've, you know, having that little buzz in your ear must've been, uh, unbearable. It, it wasn't bad. It didn't bother me at all. And I'm, I've always been a big Beach Boys fan. And one of my favorite Beach Boys songs is Heroes and Villains. And when, when you're fortunate enough to play in the NBA, um, you get to be a hero to at least some people, but you certainly get to be a villain to a lot of people. At least, you know, half the fans are going to hate you. Um, unless you're Michael Jordan, then everybody loves you. 
Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you're a villain for your, for your own fan base. And, and, and that's, you know, they, they pay you handsomely to be a hero or a villain. And, and so it, you know, Sean and I got along really well together. We still keep in touch and, uh, it was never personal and Sean always made more money than me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't going to stay that way if you didn't renegotiate his contract, but he was going to renegotiate and everybody knew that. Um, and I got to give a lot of credit to Mr. Grinker, my agent who knew the salary cap inside and out and taught me so much of the business side of things. It, it almost seemed like an unfair advantage. Like we'd go through the salary, you know, he had the list of salaries of everybody in the NBA and he's showing me these salaries. And, and like at the time, the minimum wage in the NBA was $145,000. And, uh, he said, now look at this poor soul. He's making $150,000. It's like, well, that's 5,000 above minimum wage. He's like, yeah, but he's actually making less money than he would if he was making minimum wage because the agent will tell the guy, I'm not going to have you play for minimum. I'll get you something above minimum. And then he'll go to the team and say, I, I promised my guy I'd give him something above minimum. Can you just give him an extra five grand? And the team will be like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever, five grand. Um, but what the team, either they knew or didn't, and didn't care or didn't know and the player certainly didn't know was that if you are representing a player at a minimum salary then you get a set dollar amount for your represent your you representation okay. you know, you, minimum wage commission but anything above minimum you can charge up to four percent so you know that difference that agent was essentially taking several thousand dollars from that player wow. so that's they pretty got shady. Money, got less money. <laughs> wow. A lot of shady agents. And so I was so lucky to get Mr. Grinker who'd show me that stuff and knew the salary cap, knew which teams were going to have space available and when they were. And, you know, I'm, I'm a rookie in the second round. So there was no guaranteed contract for Jim. I played my way into an offer from the Bullets my rookie year. And they offered me a three-year deal. And Mr. Grinker's like, nope, we're taking a one-year deal. I'm like, but, but Mr. Grinker, if I play three years, I'll be vested and I'll have a pension of some kind at some point. He's like, nope, we're doing a one-year deal. So it was a bit of a roll of the dice. And <clears throat> it was less money in total than the three-year deal. But we did it. And then I had a pretty good year. And they wanted me back. And then Minnesota uh, was going to draft Kevin Garnett. And I went in and worked out for the Timberwolves and had a great workout with Kevin McHale. And he liked me a lot. He wanted to surround Kevin with good people because he was coming straight out of high school. And so they offered me an offer sheet and the bullets, um, because I was a restricted free agent at that time in the NBA, after your first contract, you were a restricted free agent. So any team could come in and, and make an offer to you, but your own team had the ability to match that and bring you back. So the bullets waited until like the very last day to match it. So I missed all a training camp or just about all of it. My second year, because I, I was waiting on whether the bullets were going to match the offer from Minnesota. And, and my agent, again, being the smart guy that he was built all kinds of stuff into the contract to try to keep Washington from matching it mm, because okay. we were playing at the U S air arena, which was like one of the oldest arenas. And somehow they, they only had enough parking spaces inside the arena for Juwan Howard, um, Chris Weber, and Scott Skiles to park their cars in there. Everybody else had to park 
I had to walk up the long ramp and go out into the elements out in the parking lot and talk to fans. And that, that wasn't a big deal, but um, everybody, everybody in Minnesota got to park inside. So Mr. Grinker put that as one of the stipulations in, in the contract that Washington was going to have to match. And it's like, okay, who are you going to kick out to the parking lot? Scott Skiles or Chris Weber, or Juwan Howard. So Jim can park his, his truck in, in, the, in the building. Um, so they, they got, they, they went to the league, I think, and fought some of those clauses and, and basically got them taken out. Um, but he, he put a couple in there. I can't remember what all of them were, but things that Minnesota was doing for all of their guys anyway. And he put those in their contractual things and, and Washington wasn't doing any of them for any of their guys, <laughs> except maybe one or two. That's and pretty, Washington. that's pretty odd. So was it because you were a second rounder, not a first rounder that you didn't have like a uh, more, you said it was just a one-year option or. So my first contract was a one-year deal. Yeah. And but a first, round, a first rounder would have had more than one year, right? A first rounder, I think, would have um, like a slotted three-year guarantee. Gotcha. Okay. So you get a three-year contract, and it's slotted to a certain amount, and and agents are able to negotiate within this range. But you know, everybody signed for the maximum within the range, so it really wasn't a range. Um, and then the second second round guys were kind of stuck a little bit. I don't I don't follow it closely anymore now to know, but back when I was there you almost were better off not getting drafted. It's probably still that way now, because if you did get drafted in the second round, you were stuck. You had to go play for that team until they released you or signed you. And you could go somewhere where they had four or five guys stacked up at your position. You were never going to make the team, never going to make the play, but they needed a warm body for their summer league and they needed some warm bodies for their training camp. So, um, they, they, uh, they brought you in anyway. And, and in the meantime, somebody else where you could have made the team couldn't have access to you until that team released you or waived you. So uh, a lot of times you're, you're better off if you're going late in the second round, not getting drafted at all. So at least you can try to pick and choose where you got the best shot at making the team. Hmm. So I, I got to ask, I'm uh, sorry, Abe, I'm going off script here, but we can go long. If you guys want to go long, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, is there a player that you played against in your in your time in the NBA that you couldn't stand as a player or a human being or if you care to share? Yeah, yeah. Ask ask the ask our guest to call someone out and fight. Yeah. Folks in fight. the nicest way. <laughs> so Jim, rottenest person in the NBA that you just didn't like. Um, I didn't like Carl Malone. Um. And, and I can't say that strongly enough. And part of that, I'll be honest with you, is the influence of Derek Smith, who was an assistant coach two years in Washington. We lost him, I think, the year I went to Seattle. Uh, he died way too young. He was in his 30s on a cruise. Uh, oh. Yeah, he had a heart condition. But Derek was a tremendous basketball player, won a national title at Louisville and was a great player in the NBA and was playing for Sacramento. And, and again, this is, you know, the NBA has all this footage and I don't know if they'll ever put it on NBA TV or what, but uh, Carl Malone um, shattered the orbital bone on Derek Smith's face with an elbow and, mm. and he didn't need to. And, and it was, I have every reason to believe it was intentional. 
And everything I saw of Carl Malone throughout my career, you remember when he knocked out David Robinson and mm. David Robinson yep. collapsed on the floor out cold and he hit Dirk Nowitzki with an, like constantly. And I'm, and I'm sending like emails to Mark Cuban when all this, like when Nowitzki got hit, I'm like, don't forget about David Robinson. Don't forget about Derek Smith. Cause I just, I didn't like Carl as, you know, such a phenomenally talented player who didn't need to be a dirty player, but he was anyway. And I've never, I never understood why he felt the need to do that stuff. I just, it's just awful. You know, it's, it's not the way the game should be played. So I, I didn't like Carl Malone at all. That might and, be, and, that might be the culture there. Cause wasn't Stockton a pretty dirty guy. Stockton was a dirty guy. Maybe it's cause he was a guard. He wasn't going to hurt you, you know, yeah. it, he wasn't going to, grab your junk or anything he, he was dirty <laughs> you know were there people that did that <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. Um, as, as a marquette fan I, I can tell you that's still being coached apparently at some schools in in the state of wisconsin oh and, and there's no evidence of that but um stockton would grab and pull and do all that but you know what he's he was shorter and he was slower than a lot of guys so he needed every advantage he could get so um you know, and Danny Ainge was notoriously a dirty yeah. player, but he, not, not to the extent that they, you know, Derek Smith's career was almost ended by Carl Malone. And you look at the shot that David Robinson took and the shot that Dirk Nowitzki took and, and who knows how many other elbows, you know, landed on guys that really didn't need to have that happen. Right. So, and I know guys that have played with Carl and think the world of him. He's a great teammate and this and that, but, I've never shared that opinion. So you mentioned oh, uh, Eric Montrose. And I was thinking about, uh, you actually played behind George Mirasan. I'm sure in college, you could go the whole year and you were the biggest guy on the court. And then you go, you know, you got guys like Sean Bradley and Manute Bull and <laughs> Dikembe Mutombo and Shaq. Uh, that must be quite the culture shock <laughs> when, you, when you're probably used you know, to being was- the biggest guy. It was really cool because George was a relatively young guy. And um, so we were, you know, essentially kids together in the NBA. He had a couple of years in by the time I got there, but we, our wives became great friends and George and I became great friends and we still get together and hang out. I, when I, when I was doing the radio for Marquette, every time I went to the Georgetown games in DC, I'd try to connect with George and, and my wife and kids and I, um, a couple of years ago over like Easter break, we went up and stayed with the Mirasans in Virginia. And, and he's, he's so busy. He's got camps up there and he does work for the wizards, but they've got a place in Florida, but for whatever reason, I've been down there since 2020, we haven't had a chance to connect down there yet, but I just, I love George to death. He's such a great guy. He's got such a, a great heart to him. And, you know, in the, in the world of social media, I made a huge mistake. <laughs> because I, you know, you, I don't, I don't, I guess, and I'll be honest with you, that's what I do for a living kind of for uh, optimal batteries. But um, I, when I was hanging out at George's house, he's like, let's go play racquetball. Have you ever played racquetball? And he says, in George's accent, I'm like, no, I haven't, but I'll give it a shot. And I don't even know if I had, I might've had like a pair of tennis shoes with me or whatever. And, and so the smart social media Jim would have set up his phone and live stream George Mirasan and Jim McElvain playing racquetball. But I didn't think of <laughs> afterwards, but it, it would have been 
you know that that would have gotten us a million views on youtube for sure but what what a, what a couple and maybe next time we get together we'll do that but um i love george so much he's he's such a great guy he's got two sons victor and george and and just both smart as whips and and uh both i think uh victor is a walk-on preferred walk-on at georgetown and, and george played his whole uh, career as a, a walk-on at Georgetown and, and they're both like 6'10 and, and great kids as well wow. such a fantastic woman okay um, George but, George Mirson of course those those who don't know seven foot seven center also co-star with Billy Crystal uh in what was that movie uh my giant my giant yeah <laughs> so if you have time I'll share another Mike Peplowski story because all my best NBA stories involve Mike Peplowski I think we should have that right now I, I want to yes. hear one yes <laughs> <clears throat> because I'll and and I will say this Tim Legler was on the team with me in Washington when we signed Mike Petlowski to two 10-day contracts um Tim said he was going to write a book about his NBA career when he got done and when he did Mike Petlowski would have his own chapter <laughs> so um we're we're practicing and you learn quickly how to guard George in the post because George at seven foot seven, when he normally turns around to shoot, his elbows are headed right towards your nose. So you gotta be ready for that. You know, swinging, you know, if you're too closer and your head's in the wrong place, he's gonna hit you and he's not gonna do it on purpose. Mike Peplowski learned the hard way and had his nose broken by George in practice. And so and and at the time, I don't know if they still do it, but when you break your nose and you're gushing blood out of your nose they they cut tampons in half and shove tampons up your nose and <laughs> so mike's like you know get him in there get him in there he's like so upset at george you want to go out there and literally knock george out and and so jimmy lineham was the coach and 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 i don't know who got to jimmy but somebody's like hey jimmy peplowski's gonna kill george and and like hurt him and maim him he's so pissed at him and Jimmy's like, okay, everyone, can't practice over. Practice canceled. So he, he like ended practice early, so Peplowski didn't kill George. And uh, so Mike sets up this whole thing where he's asking, uh, has anybody ever followed you home from a game? And everybody's like, no, nobody follows you home from games. That's silly. And so one day, <clears throat> George is always like the first one to show up at practice. And, and like, we're a half hour from practice starting. I'm like, where's George? Nobody knows. And, and, and the story goes in a lot of different directions. There's a lot of tentacles. So just follow me on this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Greg Geica was George's translator, my rookie year. And Greg Geica was, as it turns out, an exiled prince from Romania. <laughs> really? So, oh, wow. <laughs> George romanian prince working as his interpreter and, and they got rid of him for my second year because i guess the bulls just didn't want to pay for that anymore and george's english was pre getting pretty good he could understand everything even if he didn't speak it that fluently and he speaks it fluently now but yeah so greg geica was george's interpreter so um george wasn't at practice was like what do we do because you know greg used to make sure you know george was there and would meet him and ride to practice or whatever and you call the house and George, what's going on? He was trying to explain in broken English. He's having car problems and wasn't going to make it. And, and then it turns out um, George, George's wife had a Jeep. It was parked in the garage and he had his Chevy Blazer 
GMT 400 for those who are into cars like I am. They know <laughs> what I mean. GMT 400 Blazer um, with a modified seat so George could fit in it. <laughs> that was that was parked outside the garage, blocking Lily's Jeep in the garage. Well, somebody came and let all the air out of the tires of George's Blazer. And so George was late for practice that day. And, and I don't even know if he made it to practice that day or missed practice because he couldn't drive his, his Blazer. And, and then shortly before Mike Peplowski's second 10-day contract was up, he confided in Bob McCann, who was also missed. He passed away. We lost him several years ago. Um, that he actually followed George home one day to see where he lived. And I don't think Mike, Mike Peplowski traveled anywhere that he didn't carry a full arsenal of weaponry with him. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> He's, he was into that stuff and his MBA uh, salary and income allowed him to um, accumulate a, a fairly decent stockpile, far superior to whatever I'm probably packing at my house. So was he out so, for revenge? Yeah. Ooh. So he, he found out where George lived. What, as the, as the story goes, as told by... <laughs> Bob McCann, who is no longer with us and cannot verify the, the truth or not of the story or, or my remembrance of an interpretation of it. So Peplowski went home, dressed up in black face paint and black like night camo, and then drove back over to George's neighborhood, like loaded to the gills with all kinds of guns. I don't know what he was going to do with all of them, but he snuck up to George's house and let all the air out of George's tires. <laughs> so it was probably, as revenge for getting his nose broken that's better than the alternative <laughs> i guess <laughs> so kind of harmless revenge um and i'm i'm sorry i apologize to people listening waiting for more sonic stories and all i'm giving are washington bullet stories but what and there's 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 more mike petlowski stories that i was sharing uh <laughs> earlier today with fred roberts that i cannot share on a podcast um, but but i can say this um, I'm going to go get Vin Baker's book because uh, Mike Peplowski ran with Frank Burkowski when, when, when those two Polacks were playing together in Sacramento. <laughs> and and the, pe the stories Peplowski shared, I think, will constitute a good portion of the chapter of Tim Legler's book when he ever gets around to writing it. Um, but he claimed that Frank Burkowski, and this is kind of Sonics related, when he was playing for Sacramento, um, he did a solid to Mike Peplowski because Pep was at the end of his second 10 day contract and they either got to sign you for the rest of the season or cut you loose and not bring you back. So <clears throat> Rick's like, yeah, um, I, I think I'm about done this year. And Pep's like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, I got the shoulder has been bothering me and, and uh, I, I need to get surgery on it. And if I, if I go down then they can't get rid of you, they got to sign you for the rest of the season. It's like, you don't need to do that. He's like, no, I'm going to do it. And, and I don't know if he called it like when he was going to do it or whatever, but he could apparently pop his shoulder in and out of joint whenever he wanted. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, like in the third quarter, some play happened and, and Burkowski like ran into the backstop of the hoop and popped his shoulder out and dislocated his shoulder. And so he was done for the year. And then Peplowski got signed on for the rest of the season. As the story goes, as told by Mike Peplowski in the bus one night to Brent Price and Tim Langler and I. Um, so, Nice, nice thing for Frank to do to get a guy, uh, you know, a little bit extra money in the rest of the year. And, and I think probably a year of uh, towards his pension, if he was able to get three years in. That is awesome. I was, I was 
<laughs> I was only going to ask you if you're, you're, you ever tried to get into the Hoop Dreams movie, but uh, that story's better. <laughs> Will Gates, I was I was left on the cutting room floor in in that movie. So yeah, I rewatched it. I didn't see you anywhere. <laughs> that turned into a movie. My my aunt is in the movie. Oh really? Okay. Um, Shirley Zayer was one of his teachers at St. Joe's Westchester St. Joe's, and she's my aunt. Okay. And your coach was in there too, right? Yeah. Kevin O'Neill's in there. They came to the wedding and they were at Marquette and, and it originally started as kind of like a TV series that was on PBS Hmm. where they following Will and Arthur. And and then they ended up cutting it into a movie and, and then the movie just blew up and got super successful to the point that uh, if you want to buy hoop dreams apparel, Will Gates will sell you Hoop Dreams Apparel. He's selling that on Facebook. It's not hard to find if anybody's interested in it. And he's he's still uh, riding that like a rented mule. And good for him. Why shouldn't he? <laughs> but Will Gates and I played together before Marquette at Howard Garfinkel's five-star basketball camp, Pit 2, which is another lost gem. And I mean an absolute lost gem of basketball. If, if you could hop into a time machine, I would tell you to hop into a time machine and go back to any five-star basketball camp that Howard Garfinkel was running back in the 1980s. And just the players who were there and the coaches who were there, like Chuck Daly was the speaker when, when we were there. And, you know, like Dick Vitale would come in and speak. And Billy Donovan was one of the, he was, he was working, you know, station 13 and, and, uh, and all these, you know, coaches that went on to all kinds of incredible careers. Jerry Wainwright was a, a big five-star guy. And, and if you'd like, I can indulge and share a, a really cool five-star story with you. Yeah. Uh, is, this the, is this a Nike All-America or is no, this something different? No. So the Nike All-American camp was in New Jersey and oh, it was okay. like the week before five-star. And so. Is this similar though? Was, or no, no, no Nike no, okay. was invitation only, and it was like fifty guys, or whatever. And <clears throat> I was in the like the first, very first generation of AAU basketball, so um, we had a team out of Milwaukee that was for for a first go round exceptionally good. We had, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, we had NBA height on our team. Kevin Rankin, who was like six eleven, played at Northwestern, was on the team. Jeff Peterson, who's 6'11", played at Wisconsin, was on the team. Dion Mims, who was recruited to Utah, but I don't know that he ever played college basketball, 6'11". And we had me. And that was just, you know, the frontline guys. And then we had, you know, guys that were 6'8". Everybody on the team played D1 basketball somewhere. And, and that's where I, I got to meet Juwan Howard before we were in the NBA and, and, and Chris Weber and all those guys. So um, as a team, most of us went to that five-star camp. Uh, Kevin Larkin's dad, Tim Larkin, drove a bunch of guys out in his Cadillac Fleetwood. And my dad had a 1987 blue Ford Bivouac Romer conversion van. And he hauled a bunch of us out there. My dad brought his golf clubs and he played golf all week out in Pennsylvania while we went to uh, uh, the, the five-star camp. So they put us all on different teams and stuff. And, and Will and I ended up on the same team out there. He was out there independently of whatever I was doing. And he was just coming off his knee injury. Um, but still a phenomenal player. So Grant Hill was out there that week. Christian Leitner was counselors. Uh, It's just, it just, it was a who's who of basketball. It was just 
bananas crazy. You wouldn't even believe the names of the guys who were playing. Like you look at the program or the, the pamphlet that they used to sell it. And, you know, they highlight the NBA all-stars like Michael Jordan played in it. And Pat, everybody who was anybody who played in the NBA went to five-star when they were in high school. That's just the way it was. Okay. So, and, and then so, did you, you were probably 18. Did you know that? Like, oh my God, look at all these guys or. No, we were like 16. And, 16. and there okay. was like 200, <laughs> and I'm not even exaggerating, 200 college basketball coaches at five-star watching you because they could. Wow. And, wow that's and so, right. And that's, you know, that was the observation period. And, and, you know, I don't know why the NCAA did it, but they, they turned the, the asylum over to the inmates and let all these crooked, sleazy AAU people who charge coaches like $500 for an inaccurate pamphlet for their basketball tournament. And, you know, plus $50 a day tickets to get in. It's just, that's that's who controls the the summer basketball now and 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 at least when garf was there i'm sure garf made plenty of money and and i you know like puma was sponsoring five star nobody wore pumas and we're like we got puma on our, our, <laughs> nobody does i still have my five star basketball shoes um and i still have my five star i made the all-star team and I still have the VHS tape somewhere. I think I sent it. I might have sent it to Adam Ryan. If I didn't, I will at some point. And he'll convert it to DVD and send it back to me. So um, Jerry Wainwright was big time. He, and he was an assistant coach at Wake Forest. Longtime assistant there. And, and he was like worked at DePaul. He actually worked at Marquette for a little while. We had great five-star stories that we shared. Um, and there was another assistant coach who was a younger guy. I don't remember his name, but he, uh, I think he was working for Pitt as like a graduate assistant or something. He was a huge, you know, those were, those guys would go into the weight room and they'd throw around 225 like it was nothing. And, and so Dion Mims, the 6'11 guy who was on my AAU team and was playing out at five star, got into it in a game with the, not Jerry Wainwright, but the other coach from Pitt who was ref in the game because he made a call on him when Grant Hill was going to the basket and and Dion started swearing at him like man you know you guys are you know Grant Hill is you know Mr. Special and, and he obviously used a lot of profanity um, but <laughs> and swore at these coaches and I'm like Dion what are you crazy because we're all looking at Jerry Wainwright and this other guy like I think they're on steroids yeah I think they're on steroids too look how huge they are they you don't get that way just from lifting weight. And they might've been, I don't know. They were really big. It's like, if you're going to get into a fight with two coaches, those are the last two coaches you <laughs> want to get into a fight with. And there's Dion screaming at him and swearing at him because they're calling fouls on him when Grant Hill's going to the basket. And it's like, Dion, not, that's, that's not the appropriate time. So what, what a, what a character Dion. And, and there's, I imagine if people search Google for Dion Mims, they'll find, the, the long and sordid tale of how he ended up in Wisconsin from Mississippi. Um, it, but Rick Majerus was trying to recruit him to Utah. Um, but wow, what, what a great time five-star was. And, and I, I probably have the old pamphlet somewhere. I have all my old hoop scoops in different places. There is something <laughs> I never want to do again. I was a referee for CYA uh, <sighs> and it was just like, I can't, handle these parents <laughs> it wasn't even the players um yeah and parents uh, are the worst. oh they're terrible <laughs> i'm coaching my own kids who are eight and five and and i tell all the parents at the beginning of the season i said 
I'm here to make sure these kids have fun and they may not learn anything, but I hope they have fun and I hope they learn something and winning and losing is not even on my radar. I want to make sure every kid gets a chance to dribble the ball up the court. And so we're going to do that. Even if it means as soon as they get over half court, the other team steals and goes the other way. That's okay. You know, I'm not paying attention to this. And we won most of our games. And, and I had parents last season coming up, what's your name? I want my kids to be on your team. And I'm like, I don't care about winning. I know we beat you, but I, I just want the kids to have fun and, and learn the game. And, and I don't tolerate <clears throat> parents who are like, we got to play my kid more. You got to, they're five years old or eight years old. And even <laughs> when they're, they're 12 years old or 13, they're still just 12 or 13 years old. Let them be kids. Let them have fun with the game. I nine sports down in Florida has it the right way they at, at the age my kids are at they have a half hour practice each week which takes place right before their game then they play their game for a half hour and then they're done so you don't have to you know get in the car twice a week to go to practice and it's not four seasons or you know, like crazy soccer families in wisconsin two seasons and you're playing on ice and snow and and all that nonsense it's just one season seven weeks seven games go have fun and and that's it Good for you. That's awesome. I, I got one more question for you. You're working for Optima Batteries. I, will you tell us what you're doing with uh, for Optima Batteries? I'm kind of curious. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of it, it's a digital type of job. Um, I oversee their online sales, their social media, the website, a lot of that stuff. But what I spend a lot of my time doing is helping people. And they may not necessarily have our batteries, but they may have a battery problem. Um, and so I was trying to get on every radio show I could when lockdown happened because I saw the writing on the wall. Um, I knew if people were going to park their cars and not go anywhere for a couple of weeks or hardly go anywhere except maybe the grocery store for a month or more, that their cars were going to eat their batteries alive. Because a lot of these new cars, every GM vehicle has OnStar. And it's just like when you go into a building where that doesn't have good reception for your cell phone, the battery dies sooner because it's trying to find reception. OnStar does the same thing when you park your vehicle in the garage. And mm. all these cars, new cars have integrated alarm systems and, and memory presets. And maybe you leave the keys in the cup holder. And so on some cars, when the fob gets close enough to the car, it activates the computer system and gets ready to start the car up. So these batteries can literally get discharged in, an, in you know, a matter of a couple of weeks if, if they're not used regularly. Like Volkswagens that get shipped over from Germany have plug-in um, solar panels that attach to the inside of the dash uh, on the inside of the windshield and plug into the cigarette lighter to help keep the batteries charged because they they discharge batteries. If they didn't have that, they couldn't get them shipped from Germany to the U.S. without the battery. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So would you say that uh, that movie Jurassic World are horrible liars when the two kids get 25-year-old Jeeps to work? <laughs> you know, not necessarily, because older vehicles don't really have all those gadgets and doodads. Mm. And, and I'll, I'll hear from people like, yeah, my 68 F100 pickup truck never had battery. I'm I only replaced my diehard every 15 or 20 years. And well, you know, you had roll up windows in there and you had an, a radio delete. So you didn't have a radio in there and you had no seat heaters or memory seats or nothing. 
And so it's really simple from an electrical standpoint. So in theory, you know, batteries can, if, if their voltage is well-maintained, they can last 10, 15, 20, 25. We've got stories of our batteries lasting 25 or 30 years if they're, they're well-maintained and they're not, there's, you know, now I'm getting into the battery nerd world. Perkett's <laughs> law states, the more deeply you cycle a battery, the fewer cycles you will get out of it for lead acid batteries. So if you have shallow discharge uh, cycles where you're just starting up an engine and, and it charges right back up, it's fine. But if you park at the soccer field and the kids watching the DVD player while the other kids at practice, you're going to kill that battery. Mm -hmm. Or if, if you live in Phoenix where the heat is really hard on batteries, you're going to kill that battery. Or if you let it sit all winter and you don't keep the battery voltage properly maintained, any battery that gets discharged below 12.4 volts starts sulfating, which diminishes the ability of the battery's capacity and, and, and the, the lifespan of the battery. So now that's what the, the lead, that's what the lead acid. What about the lithium ion? <clears throat> so lead acid batteries are in eh, 99% of vehicles on the road today. Oh, okay. And it might be conservative. It might, it's not a hundred, but it's close to a hundred. Because every Tesla on the road today has a lead-acid battery in it. I thought they... Um, oh, really? Okay. They have a 12-volt lead-acid battery. They have lithium batteries for their for powering the car and mm. moving the car. But for the accessories and that stuff, they got a 12-volt battery. Um, so if, if you keep your battery at least charged to 12.6 volts, I know they're called 12-volt batteries, but you really need to keep it charged at least 12.6 volts whenever you can, especially if it's in storage, especially if you have a boat or something that you only use seasonally, that's gonna extend the performance and lifespan of your battery, no matter who manufactured it or what brand name is on it. So keep your battery properly charged whenever you can, if, especially if you don't use the vehicle very much. When was the last time you replaced your battery? Uh, six years ago. Yeah, about six eight years. years ago here. Okay, and what kind of cars are you guys driving? Jeep Wrangler. The Toyota Tacoma. Toyota Coma is like a D27F, although you could use a Group 35 in that. And, and a Jeep Wrangler is, is Chrysler vehicles. The charging systems tend to be a little harder on them, but you don't have like a winch on there or off-road lights or anything, no, right? No. In, in Florida, we've got a lot of Jeeps called mall crawlers. Mall crawlers? <laughs> yeah. They, you know, like out west, I go to King of Hammers every year. People go out and crawl around on the rocks out there. But all the Jeeps in Florida, they take the doors off and put little foot stirrups on the outside so they can put their foot on the outside of their door and, and they just crawl around in the malls. They don't they don't go off-road with them. They're too fancy pants. But they take the door <laughs> the Jeeps and and we jump start these Jeeps at the SEMA show every year. They take their doors off and they don't realize that they've got to take care of that sensor that when you open your door, the inside light turns on. So when you take the door off, your inside light turns on. It stays on unless you do something about it. Oh. And so those guys kill their batteries. Just do it, or they wire the stereo wrong and the amp stays on all the time and drains the battery or they put a car alarm on and think it's fine and it's, it's going to drain the battery in like two days or whatever. So Awesome. Well, this has I, been Car Talk with Jim McElvain. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but Jim, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. We're hitting the end of uh, the end here. We always like to, we always like to end on a positive note, and that's uh, with our shout outs of, of the week. Uh, Brian, would you like to go first? Yeah, I'm gonna 
I, I, uh, I usually have million shout outs, but I'm just going to narrow it to one. Shout out to you, Jim. I, we've been very blessed with many guests this year, including yourself. And it's been a pleasure getting to know you. I mean, we, we could have talked to you for hours and hopefully we can have you on again one day, but thank you. Seriously. I'd be happy to do it anytime you guys want to have me on. Thank you so much. Awesome. And then I'll do a shout out here to uh, the Seattle Mariners. I know it's looking a little glum, but uh, we got a home game tomorrow and thank you to uh, all the salespeople who I keep badgering with questions <laughs> And they're putting up with me another crazy uh, Mariners fan. How about you, Jim? Do you have a shout out this week? I'm going to shout out to Fred Roberts. Um, I've had lunch with him at the Red Iguana in Salt Lake City the last two years running because I get to come out here for work. And he's a school teacher and he retired. And then he went back and he's teaching at school again and just loves it. And he's one of the most decent kindest honest people you'd ever run into and the kids that are in his class are so lucky to have him as a teacher because he he loves teaching kids and i you know there we could have a lot better politicians if we had the most qualified people run for office but they don't want to deal with it and we can have <laughs> a lot better teachers and we have a lot of great teachers we could have even better teachers if they didn't have to deal with all the you know the, the poor pay and the poor working conditions that these teachers put up with um and so i'm, I'm thankful not just for for fred but for all the teachers that go out there and, and teach the next generation under under very tough conditions awesome thank you all right that's the end of our show everybody i'm abraham deweese and on behalf of brian solak and our special guests for former seattle supersonic jim McElveen, we'll see you guys next time